Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being's Unheard Cuts. Up next, my unedited conversation with literary historian Lindsay Stonebridge. There's a shorter, produced version of this conversation at Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to listen. Hi, Krista. Yes, Lindsay. So we we managed to connect to France, but our printer wasn't working. (laughs) Technology is, you know, never the all the whole answer. I'm sure Hannah Arendt would find something interesting about this. (laughs) Um, I'm so glad to be talking to you. I just was very animated by that. you know the podcast in our time, and especially by you. I kept, I kept, I was, I actually because your voices sounded a little similar, um, just the timbre of them, and so yeah. I, I had to go back and say, okay, now who's that? That's Lindsay. <laughs> um, no, a couple of people said that. It's yeah, kind of British women's voices. <laughs> well, you kind of, I mean, you were very different in terms of your style of speaking, um, but yeah, it was a little because I couldn't tell when you know he didn't. Unless you were really listening carefully, it's like I couldn't tell who he was, you know, yeah. who it was, name whose name was being given. So I have way I'm too glad ma- you liked it. Yeah. Well, I have way too many notes, um, but um, I think we should just plunge in and have a pretty wide-ranging conversation about this. Great. Okay. I guess we need a little bit more um, of you... Why don't you just tell me something mundane, like uh, what you had for lunch? Mm. Um, I had some salad for lunch and some leftover risotto, but it was under the sun of the southwestern France, <laughs> southwestern France to early spring, so it was beautiful. Oh. <laughs> Is that well, okay, Chris? Yeah. Are you on sabbatical? No. Um, we have a slightly longer um, Easter vac okay. vacation mm-hmm. in Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, and I spend as much time as I can down here because I have family here and we have a house here Mm -hmm. and it's where I get to write and think. Um, I'm also about an hour away from where Hannah Arendt was in, um, a detention camp in Gers. Oh, really? So every time I'm around here, I always have a moment where I think about that. Hmm. Um, and think about the people who came through Montauban, which is about an hour from here, which is a big refugee town. Um, and Toulouse. So mm. this area has got lots of Arendt in it right. um, in some ways for me. I, I, I wonder, um, I, I wanted to ask you, and I, I'm, I'm wondering if this starts to get at that, how you, um, you know, what in the background of your life inclined you to be captured by her passions and ideas? Um, are there points of resonance that go back for you as well? Yeah, I think it took me a long time to come to Arendt. Because when I first read her as an undergraduate, and we all read The Origins of Totalitarianism, and it seemed like history. Um, And it wasn't until 
um, the end of the Cold War when I started working on a book called The Judicial Imagination. Yeah. And in that book, I wanted to understand how people judged the Holocaust, how people judged what had happened in World War II. And I was quite suspicious because it, when I started work, it was the end of the Cold War. We were t people were talking about justice and human rights again. And I was sceptical of that account. And Arendt's clarity on the issue of moral responsibility knocked me out um, straight away. And I think it was actually much later in my life that um, I came to her. And it was, it was a sense of um, moral and historical clarity that she had. I was thinking about this this morning with the other figure who's very important to me, who's also a very strong Jewish woman, was Melanie Klein, um, the um, psychoanalyst. Mm. And Klein had a question, which was, where does, where does evil come from? Where, um, you know, she was a psychoanalyst. She wanted to understand this question. Where does aggression come from? Why are we so mean? And I spent a lot of time thinking about that with Klein and only got so far. And Hannah Arendt asked another question, which I think is uniquely important, which is how in modern times is evil organized? Because mm -hmm. we can't stop where evil comes from, but we can talk about how it's organized. We can try and understand that. Um, so there's that. There's also, she, she was very committed to the idea that, you know, um, people who felt like they were outsiders and spectators um, yeah. in their worlds um, could have um, a contribution to make to that world, could understand that world from a certain perspective and could engage with it. And I think um, my, my family were the, you know, we were the first first generation middle class. My parents were the first to go to college. Mm. Um, the class system in Britain and Europe, as you know, is is, is um, very tight. Right. Always Much, having that sense of being a slight outsider defined, um, yeah. and not, yeah. yeah, not quite knowing, um, not quite being able to talk the language. And Arendt's so brilliant on talking about you know being inside and outside, being a parvenu, and wanting to wanting to blend, wanting to be you know part of a culture. And actually, you know, all being a pariah, being that you know you're coming from the outside, you know you're not quite right, and seizing that and running with it and working with it. And she, and she also had that angle for mm -hmm. me. Well, and of course, she was um, a German-Jewish intellectual who had to flee Germany in 1933 mm -hmm. and, and was a stateless refugee <laughs> for yeah. years. And what was, when she was in, where is it in France where you are, Gore? Um, she she was she was in Paris, like a, but she was deported to yeah girls girls detention Gers. camp. And wasn't she something yeah, like which an, is, an alien, some kind of yeah? She was an enemy alien. alien. So right. when yeah, enemy alien. Mm -hmm. um, so when um, um, Germans were rounded up by the French at the beginning of the war, everyone was pushed together. So she was actually deported with other Jewish women, but also with Nazis and anyone who happened to be. German, and they were brought down right. um, to Gers camp, <laughs> which yeah. was an all-women's camp. And it's very interesting because Gers used to be a camp for uh, fleeing Spanish Republicans. Mm. So, and it's on, the, it's in the Pyrenees, and it's on, it's near the border. Mm. Um, and she came there, and um, you know, she said it was the only time in her life. And the other thing I really like about Arendt is her relentless, in the face of horrible reality. Um, commitment to life. So it's the only time in her life she committed suicide. She fought for committing suicide. And if you pushed her a bit on that, she was, then was say, when she was in the well, detention camp. When she was in the detention mm -hmm, camp, and mm -hmm. that wasn't actually personal. That was that was in the context of a discussion between the women whether they'd do it collectively um, to thwart the will of the Nazis. <laughs> so it wasn't it wasn't wow. personal despair. It was a it would have been an utterly political act. Aren't we glad but she didn't. She didn't do that. <laughs> yeah, 
very glad she didn't. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, she did the thing that she always, you know, she, she, they set up a, a, a reading group and she taught political philosophy in the camp to other women. Oh. Um, wow. And it's where she first began thinking about origins of territory. Well, she'd begun a bit earlier, but she also you know, crystallized the themes of, of thinking about origins of totalitarianism hmm. as she was living it. Um, right. There's a lovely story that um, Lisa Fitko, Fitko tells. Lisa Fitko was one of the people who used to smuggle people over the Pyrenees. And she'd escaped too. And she found um, Hannah Arendt just outside Montabon, which is where a lot of the refugees went to because Montabon was a, a kind of ville of refuge. It was a city of refuge. Mm. Um, wandering around a field, just thinking to herself. <laughs> she sort of said, well, what are you doing? There's a war on. There's all this happening. And I just, I'm just thinking. <laughs> Taking the opportunity to have some solitude and to think this through. Um, so yeah, yeah, and so you know, so, 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 so there's there's so many roads I want to walk down, and I hope we get to walk down quite a few. Um, the the idea of what drew you to her, you know, moral clarity, and mm. um, I think, um, you know, just for me, rereading the origins of totalitarian dipping totalitarianism, dipping back into her. Um, after quite a few years, um, that she wasn't just that. These, this is not a historical. It's not history telling. It's it's really a delving into the human essence of what we experience and analyze as as political mm. historical events. And it, mm-hmm. I think that you know, even the term moral clarity, or you know, a term I'm using a lot these days, moral imagination. Um, yes, we. I think among the many things that have surfaced, and I, 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 this has surfaced as much in Europe as it has in the U.S., is that we we are lacking space for moral imagination and even you know a, mm-hmm. a conversation and thinking about moral clarity. Um, mm-hmm. So I so as we talk about her, you know, as you know very well, you know, this is a moment where I think you wrote somewhere Hannah Arendt is trending. And, you know, <laughs> The Origins of Totalitarianism from 1951 is on bestseller lists. And The Guardian yeah. in 2017 will write an article with the title like Totalitarianism in the Age of Trump, Lessons from Hannah Arendt. Yes. And yes. I I don't think it's – there are certainly, there's certainly parallels you can draw. And I'm, I'm we will talk about how she understood totalitarianism. But I, it's a very imperfect translation to the 21st century. Mm-hmm. And I think it would mm-hmm. be more mm-hmm. interesting for us to explore, a, a, as you point out in some of your writing, um, you know, where is it? There's this great... Um, I'm just going to read this from your from uh, this piece you've just written, or have you, is it, has this been published? Um, it's um, it's the, a piece that's just about to come out um, in Jewish Quarterly. Right. Do you know when it will come out? It's any day now. Okay, great. So <laughs> good. Okay. Um, so so I'm just going to read. This is a rather longish passage, but it's great, and I think it's a good way to frame. Um, what we're going to do. She's, you said, if there is a bar in the underworld where the lost angels of history now hang out, I imagine Arendt drawing on her eternal cigarette and issuing us a word of caution about the contemporary relevance of her work. Yes, today we see something of the same insouciant banality that crept into the political culture in the last century. Yes, there are the outrageous lies that infuriate not because they're lies, and I think this is such an interesting point you're making, and you know, children and some of our best friends lie all the time, but because it is lonely and terrifying to live in a world where political lies are accepted, even if cynically. 
It is true, too, that many of the political elements that helped till the soil of totalitarianism in the 20th century are again unblushingly conspicuous. But another sigh of smoke, a slight closing of the eyelids. The mistake we made last time was to try and derive the unprecedented from things that had already happened. We didn't think properly. Your reality is both similar but different in ways you will have to work out. To do that, she might conclude, you'd be best advised to make some new friends so that together you can learn to, quote unquote, think without banisters. (laughs) (laughs) So I hope you and I can um, kind of imagine her accompanying us in that deliberation (laughs) in terms of moral clarity in the moment we inhabit. Does that sound okay with you? Yes, that sounds very good. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, I'm just going to say right here, I think one of the most striking things, so having just said that I don't think we should stretch to draw analogies, I mean, she was, I mean, she wrote The Origins of Totalitarianism in, I think she finished writing in 1949, which is four years after Hitler Mm. has died, and I Mm. believe four years before Stalin would die, Mm -hmm. really, in the thick of dynamics that um, were very much about the 20th century. Um, Mm -hmm. But something that struck me so much that I'd forgotten Um, is this idea about the isolation of, like, that she wrote, what prepares men for totalitarian denomination. And here again is what happens in the human heart and psyche and society that makes these things possible is the fact that loneliness, once a borderline experience usually suffered in certain marginal social conditions like old age, has become an everyday experience of the ever-growing masses of our century. And if I think mm. about the Brexit experience in the UK, and I think about the last this last presidential election in the US, so much of the dynamic were, the, were human beings who had felt unseen and felt, feel disconnected. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That language she says, atomized, isolated individuals. Yeah, yeah. And she makes a further distinction in the last um, chapter of um, Origins of Totalitarianism, which she wrote later, mm-hmm. between uprootedness, which is what people, which, you know, since the Industrial Revolution, this has happened, but obviously it, it's got worse. And in periods of economic crisis, it, it, it gets far worse, is not, not feeling recognized, not feeling at home. So there's a kind of malaise of uprootedness and which she contrasts and compares with superfluousness which is not being in the world at all not being treated like you're in the world at all and that was the camps and that is the refugee camp so there's this 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 awful relationship between the uprooted of the world um, in Europe in Mm -hmm. the States Mm -hmm. and the new superfluous of the world which she understood very well Mm -hmm. because she was one of the superfluous of the world in the 1940s, right. Um, so I think she was very interested in that in, in in that relationship, and I think you're absolutely right. The loneliness is absolutely crucial, but it's you know, the question of how we imagine a response to that. Yeah. Um, you know, the, I think it's very interesting. I've discovered recently um, that Hannah Arendt taught George Orwell's 1984 
to Berkeley undergraduates in 1955. And another new bestseller. Yeah, exactly. Another new. And what would one give to have been in that classroom? Any of your listeners (laughs) were in Berkeley in 1955, being taught 1984 by Hannah Arendt. I would love to hear. Um, And she had read. I think she'd read the novel earlier because she started rewriting the last the last chapter of Origins of Totalitarianism on that question of loneliness and the new totalitarianism, which was going to be part of a later book on Marxism and Bolshevism. She never quite, she, she, you know, it, it took different routes. So she's getting that kind of analysis of, of, of Orwell. She's in dialogue with Orwell, who's, of course, dead by then. And he's saying, actually, this is what happens. The, the, the original title of 1984 was The Last Man in Europe. I and mean, if you can hear the Brexit resonances there, yeah. Yeah. The Last Man in Europe. Yeah. Um, and the loneliness. And the reason why um, Winston Smith is so drawn to Big Brother in the end is he cannot bear being alone. <laughs> he, he cannot being alone, being, bear being alone with his own worst nightmares, which is the rat torture scenario. Mm-hmm. And that I think, you know, Arendt understood that very, very well. Um, and as 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 indeed did Orwell. And I think you're absolutely right, listening to that that come cri de coeur, that, that that cry of the heart around not having a place to go. Yeah. But on the, on the other hand, she would, you know, she would have been, I think, um very, very cautious of having too ready um, answers to what you do with that dilemma. Right, I mean, she'd right. been very, very suspicious of throwing up another worldview or ideology to end the loneliness. Um, or, or very, I think she'd be very impatient um, with the way that those of us who are trying to react to our current um, scenarios, both in the UK and the US, are either turning on each other or blaming, or blaming the liberal elite or blaming high capitalism or blaming whatever she would actually be i think she'd be saying oh no you, you you need to you need to sort of slow down here and think about what you're what you're actually seeing making people unlonely um is a good project but how that's going to happen what politics you need for right. that to happen is going to be a very very hard question right or even the other thing uh, just to go back yeah sorry go, well i was going to say or even if politics is the place where that would start if it would be a political project which is more <clears throat> which is a different kind of question to raise in the 21st century than it was in the 20th century Absolutely, and i mean that is something yeah. i wanted to ask you also because she had because i you know she had this insistence that people should be more political which meant one thing mm-hmm. for her and, it, and maybe this is a way in which um, the 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 foundation on which that idea was based in her century is so different. I mean, because part yeah. right because part of because politics itself um, is called into question in a different way as part yeah. of our crisis. Yeah. How do you think yeah. about that? Yeah, I think that's I think that's absolutely right. I mean, she did the model that was always in the back of her head was. Um, you know, the Agora, the Greek polis, where the the marketplace of ideas where politics was always being renewed as people were appearing to each other. And she, you know, she knew that that, that wasn't a simple, straightforward nostalgia. She'd say, I'm not nostalgic for the Greek Republic. I'm nostalgic for the possibilities that they then could open up out of that scenario. And I said, as I said before, if you try to recreate the Greek polis um, today, or even in the 60s and 70s when Arendt was was writing about the American Republic, um, it would look like Star Trek. You'd have, you know, 
people discussing earnest, you know, philosophical questions about what to do and what the moral, morally correct thing to do, um, while machines were making making you know, making life for you and keeping everything going, <laughs> and you're whizzing through space and time, and you know, right. it's impossible. It's a fantasy, right? Um, but she did also have um, a, Greek, a, a commitment. I mean, it's why she really did like um, the idea of the United States, even though she would sometimes profess to be disappointed with the reality, is a kind of, you know, a federal politics of based around the local um, that would check um, the politics of nationalism, would check state politics. Um, and I think she would have, you know, what I think she, if she was, I was reading, rereading her stuff on civil disobedience and students, and the mm -hmm. student uprisings mm -hmm. from 1968. I'm wondering what she'd be saying now. And on the one hand, I think she'd be absolutely um, really excited because um, what she liked about the um, students in 68, particularly the civil rights movement, etc., was the fact that it was a moral um, protest. This was people saying, this is not enough, this is not good enough, um, this is morally wrong. Um, and she would have liked that a lot. And I think that is happening both um, in the UK and certainly in the US, and she would have liked that very much. And I think she might have been even slightly more excited now than she was in the early 70s or late 60s, mm -hmm. because back then what she didn't like is the way people resorted to old ideologies to try and fix up answers. So the return of certain, a new kind of socialism or a new kind of Marxism or a new kind of this or that. And I think she'd have taken that crisis in the political that you've talked about, where everything is sort of like at ground zero as an opportunity for the new, as right, an opportunity right. for new thinking. Um, which, which I was, mean, she also, yeah. things she'd have disapproved of as well. I mean, she did tend to sound like someone's very cross aunt. <laughs> Um, she was disapproving of some 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 um, some student politics, and I think there'll be some of that too. And she was hopeless. Um, yeah, I don't think she would like the simplification, the the, no. the categories, right? Which um, no, which get resorted to of entire swaths of human beings, mm. Um, mm. which happens on both sides Certainly. of the political spectrum, yeah. E even yeah. in the you know on campuses. Um, <laughs> certainly, yeah. Yeah, um, you know, no, I, I was think, very yeah. <laughs> I was very interested about your question about imagination because I think that yeah. we talk about we talk a lot today about empathy and suffering, mm -hmm. and I'm like Arendt, I'm I'm always a bit um, wary. It sounds like a terrible thing to say. I'm really a bit wary about empathy. <laughs> I really don't well, know I about this. I wanted um, to ask I, you about that because when we talk, you know, when we talk about talking about loneliness. Which is mm. which? Which, as we're discussing it in the context of her work, I mean, it's 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 clearly the human condition, and it can be a personal experience. Yeah. But sh th it's not yeah. talking about loneliness as something that you know, if we can be compassionate towards each other's loneliness, things will get better. Yeah. So yeah. So how do you think she would? Uh, yeah. How, and no, just how do you do it? Because obviously, I think you channel her a little bit. That's why I'm talking <laughs> to you. Well, I think. For her, I mean, she was she was critical of pity, and she wrote she wrote very famously in her own revolution book mm -hmm. that what she didn't like about pity is it kept the power relationship. You know, people's other people's suffering for the one who's doing the pitying or the empathizing keeps the power. Mm -hmm. Okay, mm -hmm. and also she didn't like it because once you once you have suffering as your ground zero, you can let you you can you can allow for anything in the name to end that suffering, and that was the tragedy for her of the French Revolution. You know, we have to be piteous in order to you know um, save the suffering people. And I feel that way a little bit about empathy. But I want to go back to something that you raised, Krista, earlier, which is the question, when she's talking about imagination, she is really thinking through Kant here. And she's thinking about what it's like, not necessarily to imagine 
not being in the place you're in, to be imagining to be in the place of another. And that's slightly different from pity. And it's a slightly mm. different take from empathy because it in involves something a bit harder, actually. <laughs> um, when I was reading her teaching notes um, for her classes, she, she used to um, teach a course where she taught at Cornell, Chicago, and I think at the new school called um, Political Experience in the 20th Century. And I was delighted to see her teaching notes um, as a teacher myself. And she said what she wanted to do by getting the students to read things like Orwell and Kafka and as well as the great kind of um, philosophical and political writers of the time was to imagine an experience not like your, unlike your own. So when she's teaching to Berkeley students in 1955, she says, imagine what it, what it was like to have the political experience of a European, which is an experience totally unlike yours. And then she puts in brackets, a bit like mine, but totally unlike yours, <laughs> and, which I thought was very sweet, given that you know, given what she'd just been through. Yeah, and I think it's it's that it's that kind of and what you Kant teaches us to do is not just to empathise, but which is actually to build blueprints or worlds or um, frames for understanding experience that is not ours, that cannot be incorporated into ours. So why I think it's different from empathy or pity is when you're imagining, because you're imagining to be empathetic or to share suffering, you're immediately incorporating that experience into a view of yourself and your own, own mm. worldview. Mm. What Arendt wanted was actually something a bit more radical than that, is to imagine something that's not your world, that, that makes you feel uncomfortable. Mm. And that's where the work has to has to start. And that's why she was also very committed to thinking, <laughs> Just, right. you know, to the activity of thinking. Yes, um, yes. And which is how you do that. Which is how you do that. Right. And I, I mean, I absolutely wanted to talk to you about that. And, I, you know, this is a moment of a lot of emotion out on the mm -hmm. surface of public life. And yeah. honestly, you know, Americans are very have a very conflicted kind of relationship historically and philosophically with thought and ideas. It's a different thing than it was, for example, in the Germany that Hannah Arendt yeah. was raised in, the power of ideas. But it it feels to me like there might be a receptivity now precisely because we see that it's not getting us anywhere to be <laughs> meeting my emotion with your emotion. Her, mm. As you say... You can only have moral imagination if you also think, if you are thinking. You, you, yeah. um, you, you talked in that in the this uh, podcast I heard you in that 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 brought me to you in our time about how she always talked about the dialogue we have in our heads that we are constantly working out what it means to be human, to be a person, whether we realize it or not. Yeah. Yeah, I mean that. I mean, she took this from Socrates, um, and then from 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 Heidegger. But her sense of what it meant to be a thinking person was always to be having the two in one dialogue in your head, um, as Valeray says. You know, now I think, now I am. Je pense, je suis. Um, and I think one of the reasons that she seized on Greek philosophy as a young woman and seized rather too literally on Heidegger as, a, as also as a young woman, was the endorsement of the idea that thinking wasn't about mastery. It wasn't about thinking about stuff in order to control it or to rationalise it. Mm -hmm. Thinking was a way of being. It was a way, it was the passion of being was in thinking. And that comes from that two-in-one dialogue 
in one's head. And for her, that 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 was the beginning of moral life. Comes in that dialogue. I mean, she's she's talking from she's she's channeling Socrates here big time. It's like you know, Socrates says, you know, you wouldn't want to commit murder because you don't want to live with a murderer. And when, and she she um, she uses the example which I love very much of Richard the Third, um, who is indeed a murderer, but he is one that has a dialogue with himself and that great um, soliloquy um, where Richard the Third ruminates to himself, am I a villain? Me? Call myself a villain? Et cetera, et cetera. And mm-hmm. Arendt says, at least compared to Eichmann, he was having the conversation. At least there's a notion of evil that is there. That also follows, there is a notion of judgment that comes through thinking and dialogue. Um, and uh, and the ability, discernment, I mean, right? Reflection. Um, well, she'll say, I mean, thinking, she says, is... Um, it's not the same as judgment, but it creates the right conditions mm-hmm. for judgment, um, being able to tell what is right and what is wrong. Um, so thinking in terms of that inner dialogue, but also she says if you can't have that inner dialogue, then you can't speak and act with others either because it's part of, you know, if, you, if you're already divided in yourself because you're having this conversation with yeah. yourself and that's the passion of your being, um, people who can do that can actually then move on to having conversations with other people and then judging um, with, with other people. And she, what she called the banality of evil was the inability to hear another voice, the inability to have another a dialogue either with oneself or the imagination to have a dialogue with the world, the moral world. Right. And and so one of her famous phrases is the banality of evil, which was an observation she made about Eichmann at yeah. the Nuremberg trial. And and it was controversial, but it is absolutely it's it's with us. And um and yes, and and you and that 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 was one of the key things that she observed about him that he couldn't think that somehow he had yeah. ceased thinking or turned that part of himself off to the point that it didn't seem possible for him anymore and that so it was it was connected to evil and to that banality yeah. of the evil yeah yeah i mean i think i think i just say and i think a lot of historians have pointed out that she underestimated eichmann Mm-hmm. And um, he was sort of, um, in some way, feigning. Not 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 only was he banal, he was feigning banality. Yeah, and okay. I think um, mm-hmm. I think that's the point. I think mm-hmm. she did, mm-hmm. um, but I think she was also trying very hard to understand this new evil that had gone in the world, which was banal. And I think she saw her. She sat there. She she wrote to Carl Jasper. She said, "I have to go and look at this living nightmare in the face. Mm-hmm. I have to go and see it." And what, which and is not to say trivial, saw, right? I mean, that sometimes people no, get hung up no, on no. the word. It's not to say trivial, but it's to say yeah. not this satanic drama, but a human yeah. being. Yeah, yeah. And I, I don't know, yeah, she, she might have um, um, not wanted to give Eichmann the title of human being. <laughs> Make no mistake. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, she, she was no friend, but I think what she couldn't get over... Um, was the level of banality. So there is this man who um, is, he doesn't seem to know where he is. He's sitting there in Jerusalem at, at the trial of the century, mm-hmm. confronting survivors who are, who are telling him, what, or telling the world yeah. what has happened. This extraordinary and the outpouring of genocide, grief. Of their, of their genocide. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah. he sits there and he says, oh, do you know, I was a Zionist. And you, know, you can literally people, see people's jaws mm. dropping. Mm. <laughs> it's just, mm. where does he think he is? I mean, this is, if you look at the um, transcripts of the trial right towards the end, um, he turns around to the judges and says, "Well, you know, I'm, I'm maybe I'm I'm 
guilty in an illegal sense, but you know, and, and, uh, and one day maybe I'm kind of guilty. Maybe I'd like to write a book about this to understand what I have discovered. And the judges' faces are, you know, they're trying so hard not to, you know, eye roll or jaw drop. Um, you know, do you know where you are? Do you know what you're saying? Have you not realised you know, how massively um, inappropriate and insulting it is even to say that? And I think it was that that Arendt was trying to pick up on. And it was mm -hmm. trying to understand how the th radical thoughtlessness of, um, of this man. And she was also, I mean, she said, you know, evil is like fungus. Uh, it spreads. It's something you find in the back of the woodshed. And I think she really had, you know, and, and the bureaucratization of human life allows that to happen. Right. Um, so I think that's what she was doing. But on the other hand, it is, you know, the Eichmann trial is so difficult um, to talk about. Even those, those of us who love Hannah Arendt um, find it tricky. I have a, um, there was a photograph that used to hang in my... I was very lucky as a young academic to have um, W.S. Sebald as a colleague and friend, mm, the mm. writer. And he had in his office this beautiful, which I now have, beautiful photo of Hannah Arendt at the Eichmann trial. And she's with Kurt Blumenfeld, um, um, who was the leader of the um, um, German Zionist organisation and a very good friend of Hannah Arendt, who was with her at the Eichmann trial because he was translating for her. And um, he's got his arm half round her and he's, his, in his other hand, um, he's burying his face in his hand. It's a picture of grief and care. And there's Hannah Arendt and she's staring straight across with her earphone in listening to the translation with this steely look of determination mm. on her face. Mm. Determined to understand what she's seeing. And the kind of combination of um, Blumenfeld with his care and sorrow, um, he looks like he's trying to care for her. And Arendt, she's just staring straight ahead with this look of um, sad determination. And that captures all the contradictions of that moment for me, mm. her kind of failure to realise why um, what she was saying was so hurtful. Um, and her, and because, <laughs> yeah. she, because she, wouldn't, she wouldn't do the emotion stuff, she just wouldn't do it. Yeah, yeah. Um, but also her absolute determination to say, you know, I'm going to look this living nightmare in the face and I'm going to try as best I can. Um, to understand what's happening here. And she, what is happening here is a thoughtlessness that you will not put back in its glass box with the end of Eichmann. And, and, and I think you know, you're quite right. I mean, it has proved to be the case. <laughs> you, you said something about the bureaucratization, which was part of that banality, um, mm -hmm. part of a refuge for... Like it was, instead of thinking you are part of the system yeah. and you follow the rules and you enact the rules... Yeah. You know, and again, not to I, I really would not compare Eichmann to to anyone alive right now um, in full, but the 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 sense the the revulsion and the sense of alienation people all over the place have from bureaucracy, which in our age is globalized, right? The way the phrase, mm -hmm the government will be received in yeah. many places in the U.S., the way the phrase the EU is received mm -hmm. in England. Um, yeah. Uh, there, there are echoes of, of you know, something that goes wrong. Um, there's something that goes wrong in human societies yeah. that we're still with us or we're feeling again. I don't know. Yeah. I think it's one of the first things um, Arendt did when she finally got to New York, um, one of her first jobs was to help edit Kafka's diaries. And she wrote a couple of essays on Kafka. And um, 
in those, you can see her what she's responding to, especially in something like The Castle, where Kafka says famously, um, never before had life and bureaucracy been so close, been practically the same thing, that human life itself has become bureaucratised. You remember the story of the castle, you know, the stranger, it's kind of a, it's a, certainly a migrant story, you know, the stranger arrives in a new mm, place, you come right. for work, and then you can't work out what's going on, and you, you can't settle, and, um, you know, he's blocked by this bureaucracy that no one understands. It sounds like any kind of, anyone who's worked with refugees or, or migrants in the last 10 years will know all too well um, mm. Carr's experience as he tries to um, you know, make good on the offer of work from the castle. And I think it's very interesting that she, she actually chose that. I mean, she chose it you know, because it, it, it resonated with her, her experience. But it goes back to the earlier conversation. I suppose you know, the, more, the more we become fearful of what we call life, the more we try and bureaucratise to keep other people out, yeah. the worse it gets. So it is like this monster. Um, that that is eating its own children, in yeah. in, in 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 that in that respect, um, and also in, with the kind of um, with a logic that is no logic. I mean that that's the other thing. It, it's the capricious nature of um, bureaucracy. Um, yeah. I mean, if I think even about even well-meaning bureaucracy I mean, t- takes on these yeah. dehumanizing well, this characteristics. Is very in- exactly. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. this is where you know, um, you know, humanitarianism is a very good example of you know some you know, the how how do we administer for human life? Yeah. And once you start to administer human life, you have very difficult decisions to make, um, and before you know it, you're in a situation where you're um, you're, you're running very close um, to not committing atrocities, but you know, getting very very close um, to causing harm rather than doing good. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you talk to people who work for big big aid agencies, you talk to people who've worked and then left big aid. Um, this is you know, if the bureaucratization of human life mm-hmm. brings with it um, this penalty. Yeah. Even when you think you're doing good, which is why our Home Secretary, Amber Rudd, um, who was trying to explain why Britain would not be taking any more child refugees across from France, um, said, you know, it, it was a bad policy because it encouraged child refugees. And I felt like one of those judges or someone sitting right. there in Jerusalem in 1961 thinking, I'm sorry, <laughs> sorry, you're not helping child refugees because you're, it might encourage more child refugees to come. Really? Is this a moral position? Yeah, um, right, right. No. <laughs> it's an administrative position. And it's one that, you know, I don't think these people are evil. Um um, but I think they run very, very close to the wind <laughs> um, right. with with that kind of and it, and it, that kind of at the best at best it's unthinking at worst it's cynical. Right, right, right. And <clears throat> yeah, I, I let's so let's I mean let's let's talk about refugees. Um, mm-hmm. um, it's it's an important topic for you. It's 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 you know I sometimes. I sometimes wonder, um, uh, I remember the day after the presidential election, we had an event here and, um, you know, we, with our news cycle, we, we kind of lurch from, you know, one drama to the next of what happened today that's really important, right? What happened today that mattered. Yep. And I, I often like to kind of step back and think somebody looking back a hundred years from now, like looking at this day, what will they see was happening in the world that in fact was important. And I, I feel like this refugee crisis that is so huge and ongoing and unresolved and no vision for resolving or even a sense of what that would mean 
uh, might be that thing. And I know that's more present in Europe. It's not, it actually doesn't, I mean, Americans, it, it is as important, but it, Americans don't have to feel it in quite the same way. And for you, that is, I, I sense, I mean, I wonder if you think if Hannah Arendt could <laughs> could come back with her cigarette in hand today, how she might um, ask us to be looking at this thing that is also happening kind of between and above and below and behind all the politics that we are paying attention to. Yeah, yeah. I think I think she might say very politely, I did tell you. <laughs> Mm. And I think, um, for me, the so-called refugee crisis is actually part of a continuous history that Arendt gives us the tools to understand, partly because of her her thinking and partly because she lived it. So it's a really right. clear example of her um, she living She was an enemy thinking. alien, as we said. She was an enemy mm-hmm. alien. She stateless was a refugee. Person. She was stateless mm-hmm. for 18 years of mm-hmm. her life. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think if you look, one of my favorite essays from Arendt is an essay she published in 1943 um, for the Menorah Journal called We Refugees. And it's very, very biting. Um, and it begins, the first line is just, in the first place, we do not like to be called refugees. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this is a question of what happens to people, a people, but also people when they get caught in categories that are not of their making. And she understood very well. She said, you know, before the word exile used to be, exiles used to be treated as sort of sacred figures or treated right. as hospitality yeah. in a war. I, th- I that, read that. That's so interesting to think about um Everywhere yeah. the word exile, which once had an undertone of almost sacred awe, now provokes the idea something simultaneously suspicious and unfortunate. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. And that, I mean, she said that, I think she said that in 43 as well. Yeah. Um, and I think what she then went on to say was, well, you know, the, the things that are different, one is, you know, the sheer scale of the problem of, of people being pushed out in the, in the 1940s was new. It wasn't altogether new. It had been coming for a long, long time in mm-hmm. Europe. Um so, so that was new. But the other thing, what I is think the she's scale? Very, very good do, you, on... do you have those numbers? I mean, I it, the scale of it was just unbelievable. The numbers of yeah. people who, uh, who, but, yeah, in, it depends which bits you're talking about. Yeah, right. <laughs> there's the First World so anyway, War. There's the, yeah, 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 yeah. So we can we um, I run a project with um, colleagues at the University of East Anglia, his, colleagues from the history department called Refugee History, and we mm-hmm. have lots of timelines with bars and numbers, mm-hmm. <laughs> which we're constantly revising um, as the diff- different bits of history emerge. But big, and today also on the, on a very, very similar scale, on a scale um, which, you know, ca- causes real, real political trouble. Yeah, millions, and I think 20, what tens very- of millions of people. Tens of millions, mm-hmm, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and what she's very, very good on is saying, actually, this isn't a problem for refugees. This isn't a refugee crisis. This is a crisis for the European nation states. It's a crisis for what we think we're doing. Okay, mm-hmm. um, and I think that really needs to be, um, you know, put firmly. You know, the, ref- the refugee problem isn't just the problem for people who happen to be refugees. It's a problem for everybody because it's a problem about how we're deciding um, to run our countries and our politics. Mm-hmm. And I think the other thing that she was very, very clear on is where that, why I think she's very, very good today um, is she understood that humanitarianism or human rights would not be the answer um, to hmm. um, the question that was posed by people who, for whatever reason, found themselves outside the nation state. And she, one of the one of the first things she she pointed out is that what 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 was exposed by. Um, 
the refugee crisis of the last century um, was how so-called human rights were actually political and national rights. So you were only you only had as many rights um, as were guarded by the country in which you happened to be born. Once that country decided to decitizenize you, once it decided to, that you were no longer a citizen, once it decided that it had no more responsibilities towards you, um, you were rightless. There was nothing to catch you apart from the capricious sympathy of others. And the capricious sympathy of others um, for uh, millions of Jewish people and others in mid-century Europe turned out to be a very, very poor provider of anything like human rights. Stop right. me if this sounds familiar. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, so she, yeah. she said, you know, the world, she said very famously, the world found nothing sacred in the abstract nakedness of being human. Yeah. Um, the world found nothing sacred in the abstract nakedness of being human. Yeah. So the, then the question is, well, OK, so how are we going to have a political community that um, is hospitable, that is going to work um, in terms of protecting rights? And one thing, you know, she, 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 was, you know, she, she said after, you know, after the war, refugees themselves don't, didn't tend to call for human rights. They tended to call for their own nation. For, um, they called for what? Their own nation. Their own nation. Yes. You know, because yes. people know. Yeah. You know, right. <laughs> it could be protected. Yeah. Um, so there is this sort of question about, you know, how how then uh, are we going to imagine? And the question she'd say, then it becomes politics. Then it's about, you know, imagining what kind of nation state, what kind of sovereign politics yeah. might work for the modern world. And I think, you know, um, and that's going to be realized, such a different set of questions again in the twenty first century. It's just not it is. the proposal anyone would yeah. make. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. Um, but she did, and she I think she was very, she would have predicted she that um, she had this expression, and you'll remember because you've read it recently in The Origins of Totalitarianism, called the dark background of difference. What happens when you're no longer visible in the political world, where you no longer have entitlements or presence, um, you no longer have rights, is you disappear into the dark background of difference, where she said the more interconnected the world gets, the more global it gets, the bigger the dark background of difference is going to get. Right. And therefore the more threatened, yeah. you know, the more threatened people who are, you know, consider themselves to be in, in political nation states, the more threatened they're going to be. So you're in this kind of, you know, scenario that, that, that is like a zero-sum game. Um and so that is that is where we are, and it's interesting. I mean, it's terribly, inter you know, interesting in a terrible way. I, I think that with globalization, um, which is not necessarily a word she would have used or predicted, but with globalization, there was this assumption, um, which actually didn't rest on a very sophisticated examination of the human condition, but there was this assumption that we would just grow out of that, right? Um, yeah. But what yeah. she understood, because she was looking at the human condition and taking that seriously is, it, as you say, that dark background, that this would become a crisis again. You know? Yeah, hmm. yeah. And she was also, I mean, she did, if you read The Human Condition, which is, I mean, I recommend to cheer you up, actually, <laughs> in these dark, dark times. Because it, <laughs> I it have does, not read it that does, one. It is, yeah. It, yeah. Well, it is a model of, you know, you should say, she'll talk about you know, the importance of new beginnings, the importance of natality, mm. the importance of action, the importance of speaking. And she'll talk about, you know, the world, you know, the, she'll talk about the, I mean, it's a very, it's a book that's concerned with worldliness. Mm. Um, mm -hmm. And she'll talk about the storybook of mankind, like we're all connected and we're all part of the world. Mm. Um, but she was also, I mean, she had read Rosa Luxemburg. She she understood capitalism. She was not naive. Social. She said, yeah, yeah she said, the more, yeah. you know, 
Exactly. The more that more that globalization is about the accumulation of capital, it's expansion for expansion's sake. The, so it will not produce more equality. It will produce more inequality. Hence the background of difference. So trying to work for a, a worldliness that's genuinely worldly as against a worldliness which is actually about accumulation, expansion for expansion's sake, which will increase... Um, increase the divides between people. Mm. Um, she she would have understood that. She would, I mean, if she, if she would have been so impolite to say, "I told you so," she, I don't think she would have done. <laughs> and, and, she I mean, would have been thinking it. There is that paradox that I actually think is redemptive. That's 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 uh, can be generative. That you mentioned a little while ago. That you know, I think that it doesn't make sense in terms of the way we imagine globalization. That in fact, the local has become much more important again. Right. That that mm. that that where. Mm new realities will be incubated, um, that there's a yeah. lot of power. There's, in fact, a lot of power at the local. I mean, the Internet has has has, has a power to amplify this as well. Um, yeah. That might seem nonsensical if we say, well, what we've done is we've made everybody connected and we're, we're global. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. No, I think, I, think that's, I think that's true. I think um, she would have wanted a, a proper politics with that, yeah. um, yes. which is to say, you know, um, and well, also I mean, I even think, local politicians. I mean, I think you know, mayors yeah. in the states are yeah. much more vigorous characters right now and innovative yes. than national yeah. politicians yeah. can be. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's what she always, when she first um, came to the states, um, and a story I always find as a European rather hilarious that she she went off to Massachusetts to stay with her family to learn English. I mean, she wrote the oranges. <laughs> oranges was written in her third language. Right. Um, and so she did an immersion um, um, kind of, you know, au pair, not kind of, she wasn't an au pair, but she was living in. Um, and she wrote back um, you know, to her, her husband, Lucia, and said, oh, it's awful, I can't smoke, I have to keep on going outside, I can't bear it, I can't bear it. Um, and which, you know, <laughs> does being, being very European. Um, but what, what she was also absolutely puzzled and, and um, slightly um, bewitched by, she said, it's very strange because there's a lot of political freedom in America because of... Um, you know, the, because of the local, because of, because of you know the state system, because of federalism, there's a kind of political freedom there that she's really you know coming from fascist Europe. This just looks fantastic, um, but there's also a lot of social conformity, and she couldn't really marry the two things together. Hmm. So I think she always did like that, um, you know, that that kind of sense. She also liked the you know she she saw a lot of um, virtue in the early kibbutzes. She saw a lot of virtue in um, early Soviet collectivism. You know, anything where um, people were coming together to appear to one another, to take action together, to work out where the political would be. Um, mm. I think always mm. she, she always liked very much. Mm. Um, but she would also have, um, you know, warned us not to be complacent with, with just that. You do have an obligation to the world. You can't just go back um, to the local. Right, um, right, right. In order to right. be... Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, you can't. I mean, she was, she she wrote very well um, about what she called. Well, she wasn't the only one to call it inner immigration. The idea that you might just sort of seek refuge in the small, or in other people like yourself, or on your Twitter feed. Um, yes, is not, inner. And I just want to. I just want to underline inner emigration. Um, yeah. That uh, which is you know another way you would call it maybe tuning out right or retreating into yeah. one's bubble as you say. Yeah, which is yeah. which is which could be the downside of thinking, or 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 I, su- I suppose a choice not to engage, not to think, not to engage yeah. politically. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think I mean quite often. I mean, immigration was a term that many German intellectuals used. Many people who didn't, because um, they had the luxury not to um, to leave Europe. 
mm-hmm. say, well, I, always, I was always opposed in my head. I was always an, in an immigrant. Ah. I was a distant in my head. Um, and um, Arendt was, as you can imagine, contemptuous. Right. <laughs> Yeah. Well, thanks. You yeah. Know, yeah. Right? And she, you know, she says she says in a throwaway comment, there's so many inner immigrants in, in, in Nazi Germany. It's amazing. That, you mm-hmm. know, and so many people opposed to what they were doing in their heads. Right. Um, right. So, I mean, this for her was a corruption of where thinking should take you. Right. It's not good enough just to sort of, and I think, you know, I mean, I, I can imagine her being very scathing about Twitter um, for exactly <laughs> those reasons. It's not yeah. good enough just to sit there agreeing with one another or to sort of come up with a world that, you know, mm-hmm. you think should be exist. Um, mm-hmm. It's far more difficult to face the reality, uh, you know, the reality of the world that does exist, that mm-hmm. isn't to your liking. Um, and so, you know, thinking, I think, I think she found it as a real conflict because she loved solitude. I mean, she, I mean, she was a very good friend to people, but I think she, you know, like a lot of intellectuals, um, she liked wandering around in the field, thinking to herself, mm-hmm. and she mm-hmm. found it kind of, you know, painful to be dragged into um, public and political life. But she'd never let herself off the hook on that one. Um, you know, you, you, you have to take, thinking has to be a prelude to judgment. You have to get um, back in, into political life. Um, but I think the tendency um, for in immigration now is, I mean, I, I, I think we all do it ourselves. You know, it's just yeah. like well, the rest of the world is mad. <laughs> like, right. Well, and also, than, also it's overwhelming. There's an overwhelming amount of information and and, uh, yeah. you know, events going on. I mean, I... I I I I want to I want to talk about other things. I before we kind of leave the refugee crisis behind, I you know, obviously we're not going to come up with a um game plan right here and um nor do we you know, could we say what Hannah Arendt perhaps maybe you can what she would direct us to do right now. I I just want to underscore a point you make in your writing. Because it, it, that we need to be pondering this, and we need to mm-hmm. be having a kind of conversation, including that inner conversation. I mean, you say, and you're channeling a rent. When you have a refugee crisis, what you also have is a political, existential, and moral crisis about what a country is and who its citizens are. And you also yeah. point out that possibly the reason this this makes us panic is because. What it puts before our eyes is, as you say, that you know, if if human rights are contingent, <laughs> that we in mm-hmm. fact are all vulnerable, and of course that is yes. a terrifying thing. It's a terrifying specter. Um, but yeah. then we retreat. We respond to that vulnerability by, right, in a way that is punitive, yeah. and to our fellow citizens, and I think eventually, as you say, you know, to us as societies, as citizens, as countries. Yeah. Yeah, and if you stop to... I mean, I do think there's a lot of, lot of truth in that vulnerability, because if you stop to think about it um, with refugees, if we think about rights in general... We have lots of rights that are protected, the right to um, education um, and certain gender rights, certain rights um, around race, certain rights about health. Um, when you're a refugee, um, you become a refugee by just where you happen to be born and when you happen to be born. That's it. <laughs> That right. it's the, it's right. the accident of birth. Right. It's the accident of birth that you know makes you either American or European or British or English. As well, so it is purely contingent. Yeah. It is, you know, the, yeah. the, and I think there's something about that that people really do find um, 
um, threatening. So that's why we get people sort of, you know, somehow imagining where they happen to be born entitles them to more yeah. than someone else who happens yeah. to have been born somewhere else. And when you when you stop, I mean, in the human condition, uh, Rent borrows um, a phrase which she takes from um, Herodotus um, called isonomia, which is the principle of equal liberty. And she says you need to have a political community um, which. Um, is capable of responding to isonomia or this principle of equal liberty. And it's and basically the principle of equal liberty says, well, how come I've got total freedom of movement and you haven't? Mm -hmm. How come, you know, my child gets a really good education and your, yours doesn't? How come my mum can grow vegetables mm -hmm. in her garden and your mother's garden's just been blown to bits? That's not good enough. Um, and she says, you know, we, we need to have, a, there needs to be enough in, our, in the way we think about um, political democratic life for, um, to allow citizens and people to enact, to act on the principle of equal liberty. And on the one hand, the situation um, we have now is, is a kind of phobic repudiation of vulnerability, everyone's vulnerability. Right, right, right. Um, which is very, very bad. But on it's the a other hand, it's a rejection of vulnerability, as though it is something we could reject. We say we will, we exactly, will not be exactly, vulnerable. Exactly, <laughs> we will not be vulnerable. Right. Uh, we can, right. we can prove this. Right. Um, and on, but on the other hand, um, um, both. I mean, remember the biggest refugee populations now are not actually in Europe. They're in Jordan. They're in Lebanon. They're in yeah. Turkey. Yeah. Um, they're in communities which quite often are refugee communities themselves. I mean, some of the biggest, mm. um, um, you know. Um, people who've hosted refugees are existing, either Palestinian or Kurdish or the Christian communities in, in the Middle East, who are literally making space um, for a new generation of refugees. That's not always an easy relationship. I don't want to idealise the local or I don't want to idealise the idea of refugee to refugee humanitarianism because it, it, it is, you know, it can be, it comes with all those difficulties. But it does seem to me that the principle of equal liberty or isonomia is working effectively elsewhere in the world. Um, so it should not be probably on the wit and wisdom yeah, of the rest of yeah. us um, to, to, to use a bit more moral imagination. Um, because it's it's not as if it's not happening. It is. And it also is happening, um, you know, both in Europe and, and in the States with, with the, uh, you know, the people who are what we call the new people with a new generation of activists. Mm -hmm. um, and who, it's happening. It's actually happening in yeah. communities, in local communities exactly. that have taken in refugees exactly. in both of our countries, yeah. all over Europe, right there. And those stories yeah. don't make the headlines. I mean, you get them as these exactly. feature pieces. And it's often... In exactly. Canada, and it's often they're incredible, right? Yeah. Yeah. But, it, but it's often, it's, that's not big politics. That's often, you know, in the Middle East, it would be the local mosque, or yeah. just as it was Jewish groups who helped the last refugee crisis. Yeah. It's, you know, it's, it's local Muslim groups in, in, in um, both Canada and the US and the UK. It's often Muslim groups, often Christian groups. I mean, yeah. it's places yeah. where you wouldn't, yeah. you know, that, that aren't the big humanitarian agencies, that aren't big government, mm -hmm. um, but are acting. So I think it's important to um, to recognise that those that, that, that those principles of political community are um, yeah, there are creative. We are creating spaces for them, but goodness, we need to yeah. work push against um, the the phobic repudiation of, um, as you said, vulnerability much much harder. Yeah, I, I you said you you said something so important just a minute ago, and I I want to dwell with that a little bit. That you know this idea that that uh, so you know there's a danger in invoking somebody like Hannah Arendt. Um, that you know, here we're bringing in this great intellectual, and that somehow that implies mm -hmm. um, abstraction, or right, or that this is not thinking, or even the way she thought about thinking is not for ordinary people. But yeah. what you just said about you know her validation of the 
you know, the actual power and freedom of a human being to keep idea and possibility alive. Um, mm-hmm. You know, that something might change. I mean, that's moral imagination. And just as you said, yeah. I mean, honestly, these are simple, I don't know, simple, straightforward questions that I think, and this is not just about refugees. Um, you know, in the in the States now, I think so many of us, we're living, I mean, you know, this idea of equal liberty, like we're living with this, this inequity, this these these disparities. And I know it's the same thing in, well, it's the same thing in, in the West, in all of our countries. And it, you know, to most people, I think wherever they are on the spectrum, you know, we it, it's uneasy. It feels wrong, right? But yeah. but but her insisting that our that our power to say, I don't want to live this way. I mm-hmm. how you know I don't want my children to have opportunities that are simply unthinkable for children in that neighborhood over there. And the mm-hmm. the power of putting those questions and those longings. Um, and that kind of insistence out in the world. Hmm. Yeah, and I think also, um, I think that's right, but I also would not want to... I mean, Hannah Arendt sometimes got it wrong. So what I, yeah. in, in my dream world, we have a generation of people who read Arendt with and against her. <laughs> okay. Um, that's what she said of Heidegger. I mean, she, against Heidegger, who, you know, you well. know, we've all made mistakes in our love life, but that was a big one. Yeah, well, he um, was a and She said, Nazi I always thought with and against yeah. him. Yeah, yeah exactly. Right. Like, um, yeah, I've always thought with and against her, him. And um, I do I do my thinking on the ground, which I think is what you're saying there. Yeah. Is, you know, thinking's not abstraction. It's not just something that happens in the universities or for the liberal right. elite or in the co- between the covers of the New Yorker. We're all thinking. We're all doing it all the time. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, but in a concrete way. Um, but also, I mean, she had, you know, she had her blind spot. She, she, she was, um, she got um, the experience of Black Americans very wrong, repeatedly, um, and I think that did come from a certain um, how kind was of, that? How did inability. She, how did she get that? Well, wrong? she did. She wrote a very famous piece, which uh, again <laughs> took about ill-advised bits of her life. Mm-hmm. One, Heidegger. Two, she commented on <laughs> Little Rock in 1957. Okay. You know, these are quite big mistakes. Right. Okay? right. Yeah. Um, and she she was responding to the very famous photograph of I think it's Elizabeth Eckford going into school being harangued by her classmates by mm. her white classmates and it's a very distressing photo. And Arendt um, does something which is sort of unforgivable, which she says, um, "I don't like I do, education shouldn't be where we're fighting these debates, fighting fighting the battle, civil mm. rights battle. We shouldn't be putting our kids um, up up against this. We shouldn't. Education is a social experience that should be kept apart from politics." Mm. Um, and she did it in a kind of tone um, which Ralph Ellison um, referred to, I think, as Irving Howe and to her, you know, that Olympian tone where you look, you know, you look over at other people's experience and you do not stop to check yourself. Right. You do not stop to think, well, maybe I'll shut up on this one. Um, and Ellison wrote back to her and said, and he challenged, well, a lot of people challenged her because it was um, a, a total misunderstanding. What she was doing, I think, was responding to her own very European experience of being a Jewish child and bullied and her sense of wanting a space of education to be free of politics. And Ralph Ellison turned around to her and said, look, you know, it, for black Black children in the, in the in the south, their life is already political. They're already being sacrificed day in, day out. Um, basically, you're mm. talking about a fantasy. Right. And she did actually right. did she right. did acknowledge that. But it seemed to me that, that was just one example of you could have someone who's thinking on the ground, who's thinking about moral imagination, who can be totally blind. Right. Um, and I think if if I was to honour um, Hannah Arendt, it would, uh, or if we were to sort of do things in her name in terms of thinking and judging, she would expect us. 
um, to be hard about that and to call her on a political experience that I mean, she she knew she she understood. I mean, you know, she understood perfectly well um, what political racism felt like, but right. she would not or could not make make that leap. But I did want to say that because otherwise okay. you do end up. She sounds like yeah, she sounds like a model. She okay. wasn't. You know, there there, okay. there were some serious errors there. One thing that you I've heard you say um, about her thinking is um, that felt very resonant for me is. Um, and also in terms of this equal liberty idea that that you know the mm. the power we have to say that's not fair that in um that you said um and i i am not sure where you were if this is from origins of totalitarianism and i don't think so that that what we need are vibrant communities that can change without risk a community that mm-hmm. is okay with promising mm-hmm. and a culture of forgiveness can you can yeah. you talk about that those ideas. Yeah, she says she, she says that in um, um, in the human condition. Okay, uh, she says the. I mean, modern life, the human condition, is unpredictable. Um, I mean, this is what um, you know. Since um, you know, um, since since the advent of modernity, uh, we've had rapid change. The world has become unpredictable in new ways. So I think she says, you know, for the first time. Ever and she's writing this in, in in the in the fifties in the late fifties. Um, you know, the pace of technological change is outstripped um, man's ability to adapt to change. Um, so there's a whole set of things that. Have, Wait, that's uh, more uh, true uh, now uh, than it was then. Yeah, well, exactly. Yeah, uh, yeah it's just, you know, it's just, I mean, if we thought Star Trek looked scary. Yeah. Um, now, now mm-hmm. it, that's that's far truer. So a lot of you know, the post-Reformation, we've got the turn to the self. We've got new new technology that's just outpacing our ability to be. We've got a kind of sense of um, the world slipped off its axis. So how does the hu- human condition function? In a world like that, how would anything like a political community um, um, help? And she says, well, the two things you need is, on the one hand, the ability to um, make and honour promises. Um, and this is anyone who's a parent knows how this works. You, yeah. you have to yeah. say, this will happen and it will happen. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I will make sure it happens. Right. And every um, once in a while it won't. Then, but you're saying that, that, yeah. that, you need, that, that needs, there needs to be a foundation of that. That we trust. Yeah, it each needs other. to be the faith. Yeah, yeah. That 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 that's yeah. You know, someone who is is is, mm-hmm. is going to promise you that this will happen. Mm-hmm. Um, but in order to you know um, you know keep good on that, you also and it took me ages to understand this. You did cultural forgiveness, and it took me quite a long time to understand this because I'm not a very naturally forgiving person, if I'm totally honest with myself. So, <laughs> and also, my image of Arendt was always like well, she's kind of really tough, and yeah, uh, you know she you know, she too, she talks truth to lots of things. And what's yeah. this stuff about forgiveness? It sounds a bit meh. And um, what she means is, if if you're going to have a culture that takes risks, if you're going to embody risks, and if we're going to get to anything like equal liberty or a better a better political culture, or at least a culture of ideas, you're going to have to take risks. And if you're going to do that, um, you're going to get things wrong. <laughs> is you're Mm -hmm. going to make errors. Mm -hmm. And so a mature political community needs the capacity um, for forgiveness, um, to accept that, you know, things go wrong. Um, People make mistakes. Um, And I think that, again, if you you turn back to your earlier point about the culture in um, Great Britain and the US at the moment, one of the things, one of the responses to that loneliness is to people people to want um, an alternative, which is a fantasy. Um, where you know um, where where everything will be looked after, um, we're, right. we're gonna you know we're gonna do this and it'll be fine. Right. Um, and so the capacity to have a kind of um, political community based on, well, you know, it's going to be imperfect. 
Right. I mean, right. the way both right. um, our recent elections were fought were yeah. on, on, on absolutes. Yeah. Um, there are promises being so made I thought, that I mean, can't be kept. Promises yeah. that can't be kept, with yeah. which, yeah, and watch and wait. Yeah. Um, but also a kind of um, infantilization of um, electorates. Yeah. Um, which you know right. goes that we will make uh, we will make the world safe. And you think right. you're kidding? You know, I'm 52 right. years old. I know you're not going to make the world safe. Yeah, feed me another line. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But also the um, the culture of forgiveness to me feels very important to put out there. It feels also very countercultural right now. I mean, there's also this hardening yeah. of lines. You know, yeah. Um, you were for that, or you voted for that yeah. candidate, or against yeah. that, or against that candidate, and then. Um, there's this whole world of assumptions made um, about you, um, yeah. and and it also and even at the same time that we're that we're very frustrated with people on the other side, whatever the other side is, we will not let them, you know, change. Right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, <laughs> we. The minute anything shifts or there's some kind of conciliatory move made, you know, authentic or not, it's immediately swatted down. I mean, this idea of mm. this idea of, of what did you say, a mature culture of forgiveness um, mm. that means mm. that kind of a pact in the in the middle of our life together that says we we want to change, we will extend some modicum of openness. Yeah. I think it's also a question of where that happens, though, because my, yeah. I think in big politics, the cynicism and it's and it's a cynicism. It's utterly deserved. Yeah, is I'm not going to play that game because yeah. I know you're just playing a game. Yeah. I just I know this is a game. Yeah, um, and when Arendt talks about when she, there's one of the, the, my mo- I think it's one of the most moving passages of Origins of Totalitarianism. She evokes Augustine, who she wrote her dissertation on, and she wrote her dissertation on um, Augustine's notion of love. Um, and, you know, he, he would talk about, you know, worldly love, ap- appetite, mm-hmm. desire, which is love yeah. of the future, transcendent love, which is the love of God, which is the past. And the love that she was really interested in was neighbourly love, which is neither, you know, no, neither wanting transcendence nor, nor wanting something or someone. It's just the love that says, I want you to be. And she returns to that um, saying of Augustine, that idea of neighbourly love in the origins of totalitarianism. Um, but she says that's what that's the kind of love that's available in the dark background of difference. It's not mm. the love that you're going to find on the political stage. Right. It is uh, it's because that's all you've got in the dark background of difference is neighbourly love in her, in, her, in, her, in her phrasing. And it's very interesting to me that she doesn't try and find it in you know the political, which was you know right. super known for her, and the political theatre was everything to her. Um, but she said no, actually you know love, um, that kind of neighbourly love is in the dark um, background of difference. And it is you know she'll also say you know love is something as soon as you bring it into the light of day, um, it, it kind of crumbles in the sunlight. You know, it, 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 mm. it, 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 it disappears. So I think um, if you were going to say something, if I said to her now, let's have a culture of political forgiveness, and she'd look at me, she'd she'd say, oh, grow up. <laughs> <laughs> no, right. you know, look at these guys. <laughs> Are you kidding me? Um, right. Well, and I wouldn't some... say pol- right. So politics is the most ex- is where it's become a caricature, where we have a caricature of, of, yeah. of the of the opposite of that. In fact, um, yeah. Um, but right. So I would never say a political culture for goodness, because that would not be yeah. reasonable or real realistic. Yeah. But a culture 
of forgiveness. We don't need our politicians, do we? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, to start yeah, having yeah, no, a I culture, think, to shifting our culture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that will come back to what she says about um, creating a space where you can think. Because once you start having these conversations with yourself and with, with others, you do. And once you start imagining yourself in another place, then forgiveness does follow. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. in, 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 and sometimes it doesn't. <laughs> but I think what she what she but it can. Yeah, why she was very yeah why yeah. she was very passionate about education. I think she did. She kind of idealized education in the sense that she'd have liked the kind of great German idea of uh, the Bildung um, to be available to everybody. Yeah, which is it's also like it's formation, right? It's not just education. Exactly. That word is formation. Exactly, yeah. it's formation. Yeah, um, and I think she she was romantic about that, but she was also you know we need spaces where we can think and try these ideas out. Yeah. And you're not going to have anything like even a local community or a political culture of anything like that can keep its promises or forgive, right? Unless people are allowed to think, and that's the thing about going back to your earlier point about loneliness. Yeah. Um, you know, it's you know, it, it, in order to think, you actually, in a way, you need to be in a in a in a in a culture which allows you, which endorses that process of thinking. Yeah. Um, yes, and creates space for and it. it and you need to make it a culture that that kind of makes sense. When I mean, she says yeah. in a, um, the last, the final late chapter of Origins of Totalitarianism, that you know, she's actually she's responding to George Orwell here, and she says, you know, two two plus two will never make five. Mm. That's not the problem. And, you know, George Orwell, you know, at the end, Winston's being tortured and he's made to say two plus two equals five. And this is like, you know, totalitarianism makes us all lie. She said, that's not the power. It's the fact that in a world where people are going to say it is, even though they know it isn't, <laughs> mm. that is deeply estranging. That's <laughs> that's mm. what, you know, mm. that that's mm-hmm. what creates those conditions of loneliness and despair. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's because you've lost, you know, that idea that you know, Kant was very fond of, uh, of a, a central community where people could at least sort of say, yeah, yeah, OK, this uh, this sounds reasonable. <laughs> this, we're, all, we're all sort of, this is our version of judgment. You know, I think it myself and you guys think it. OK, let's start from here. Um, and that goes... Um, that that for her is the um, the wickedness of the political lie. Um, not not I mean, people don't believe that two plus two makes five. They don't believe half of what's said. But that we can get not, ourselves not... and others to the point where we might say something like that. Some yeah. equivalent of that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I I do. Um, I there's so we're 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 we're, we're going to have to wind down here. But I've got so much else I want to talk. But I want to talk briefly, and this follows on that. I think of the idea of lying. Right. Yeah. Um, uh, which was a um, one of those elements of totalitarianism. Um, very much a subject alive in American politics now. This, you know, yeah. where did she say the ideal subject of totalitarian rule is not the convinced Nazi or the convinced communist, but people for whom the distinction between fact and fiction and the distinction between yes. true and false no longer exist. Yeah. But I yeah. find and so I think that I you know I could say that in any American political space right now and everybody on every side would say, "Oh yes." <laughs> and they would be thinking of the other <laughs> side. Um well, but, that's one of the, I've tweeted that and you, if you if you tweet that quote it runs. <laughs> like, right, it would yes. run. But 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 something I'm very intrigued getting a little bit deeper into this and reading her is that and I mean, I've thought a lot about. We already had a crisis. I think we did like a lot of things right now. It's just out on the surface what was already kind of fermenting. We already had a crisis of truth, or not mm-hmm. being able to speak about truth in a in a com- complex way, because and we've been relying on facts 
and facts were never yeah. enough. And she yeah. makes these, like here's her, her essay, Lying in Politics. She says, the deliberate falsehood deals with contingent facts, that is, with matters that carry no inherent truth within themselves, no necessity to be as they are. Factual truths, here's that, factual truths are never compellingly true. The historian yeah. knows how vulnerable is the whole texture of facts in which we spend our daily life. It is always yeah. in danger of being perforated by single lies or torn to shreds. Yeah. Facts need testimony yeah. to be remembered yeah. and trustworthy yeah. domain of human affairs. From yeah. this it follows that no factual statement can ever be beyond doubt. Take, yeah. take us inside that and what that means for us now. I think... Um, yeah, I think she's she's for, for Arendt. I think why the idea of thinking and speaking as a form of action are important to her is that what she's saying there is I mean, you can throw enough facts, you can throw all the facts you like at people, and they will not stick. We had this um, in in the UK, and I know you have too. That it's you know, okay against the, against the um, false news. We'll have uh, fact finding, and we'll tell you, yeah. and we'll have a team of researchers, and you just have to look on our website, and we'll tell you which of those are lies. And you can scream facts at people till you're blue in the face. And a lot of you know colleagues in universities and journalists have been doing exactly that very hard, you know, working tirelessly, and it's not making any difference. And I think what she's talking about there is the ability um, for through thinking and communal discourse to make truth meaningful in the world it has to happen between people you know? right <laughs> which is not saying we just make up our own reality she's not saying that it means that it you know this is why and when she says know, testimony about, it needs it needs testimony, testimony. it needs testimony. experience it needs he needs yeah. human experience yeah. around it yeah yeah yeah, it does. It needs storytelling. I mean, this is, I mean, we were used to thinking about Arendt as a political scientist, but I mean, you know, she wrote so much about literature. She understood the way that language worked. Yeah. Um, and, you know, for, for her, and she wrote, she writes incredibly well. I mean, when you teach Arendt students, they just say, compared to, you know, a lot of things we have to read, this is beautiful. This is very yeah. beautiful. Um, and so I think she, 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 that also why testimony was important to her. It's why history and um, the sense of, um, of myth were all important to her because it's what makes truth meaningful to people together in a community um, mm. and, and, and what, what endures um, uh, was, was absolutely key to her, which is why storytelling um, yeah. Was very important to her. I mean, she she was you know she 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 has this figure. She'll remember from that. I think it's from the same essay called the Truth Teller, which is she's borrowing mm -hmm. there from mm -hmm. um, her very good friend Walter Benjamin, um, another refugee who who didn't make it. Um, his yeah. idea of the storyteller, right. and you know what the storyteller is doing, is um, you know creating a political reality through his or her truth telling, and I think that's what she was talking about. So if you want to, if you want a culture that's going to um, um, take on fake news and the political lie, um, I say as a, someone who teaches literature and history, what you need is the culture of the arts and humanities. <laughs> what you need is, is more storytelling. Um, what you need is more discourse. What you need is more imagination. What you need is, is more, more creation in that way. And more of a sense of, you know, what it is that ties us, ties us to those words and ties us to, um, to those stories. Right, and, um, and ties so, us to each other, right? That, that loneliness, yeah. it mitigates that loneliness. Yeah. I mean, she's, I mean, there's a bit in the Eichmann in Jerusalem, and Arendt often criticised, to my mind, quite rightly, for um, not showing due respect to um, people who were um, giving testimony in the Eichmann trial, who were telling their stories for, like, for the first time, you know, 
first time in Israel, first time in their families. It was an extraordinary um, moment. But the one story she stops with is the story of Zindel Grinspan, who was um, Herschel Grinspan's father. Um, Herschel Grinspan was the, the man who um, assassinated a German diplomat, um, which was a pretext for Kristallnacht. Mm. And Zindel Grinspan gives his, his testimony of being pushed over the border, pushed over the Pol Polish border. And Arendt's listening to this and she stops and she says, I just thought everyone, everyone should have their moment in court. There was something um, that was so um, unique about the way he told that story, the way that his, this old man's story about being pushed across the border, being physically decitizened, right. um, resonated and managed to tell the whole story of what was happening in mm. that courtroom. And that's the truth. <laughs> I mean, yeah. that's that that's in her in her right. mind would be a, a historical a factual and a poetic and a human truth that the culture needs to pay attention to needs to spy, find space space for mm. does that sort of answer your question yeah <laughs> so we need we need more stories we need more stories we need better stories yeah right, <laughs> um, right. and we need yeah <laughs> we need three-dimensional right we need we need stories and facts and 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 conversations mm. between people and all of that working together right it's yeah yeah <laughs> yeah um <laughs> i i keep thinking and i don't even know if this if this if this um is appropriate here but i keep thinking of a story that's just in actually the show we're going to have on the air this week which is um which is a civil conversation. We had this project with uh, two people in really different places on the American spectrum. And um, uh, I, I spoke with, one, one of the people I spoke with in this conversation is, um, she's a young, millennial, African-American, progressive activist. You know, yeah. all these ways we can describe who people are. Amazing woman. And... She has had this kind of transformative encounter um, that has gotten some press because it went viral and with somebody, a white uh, man from North Carolina who called her up on a show and said, I'm racist, right? But talked about the the fear that he walked around with, right? The, the the effect that it's had on him. And he didn't want to be racist. So, I mean, I kind of think Arendt would like this because he was – he was seeing himself as an ism, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, in that ism, which is never telling the whole story. Um, and he kind of removed himself from that. And and again, what I like about this story, too, is that this is not, as you say, not just we're not talking ivory tower. You don't have to be an intellectual like Hannah Arendt. I mean, basically what he did is he he engaged his mind. He started thinking about this and actually in the moment questioning the reactions he was having to people of color and mm -hmm. changed himself and yeah. um it, it's and that all i mean right so that's a story but it's so much it bigger is. it's so much bigger than facts it's so much bigger than labels and it creates a different kind of truth um sense of yeah. truth and what can be possible but it also i mean this is why i'd be very interested to see what the young woman has to say. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, it reminds me very much of um, when Arendt went back to Germany to um, collect the Lessing Prize, which um, she was given, and she gave a speech. And, you know, Lessing was this great uh, you know, humanist and great believer in dialogue. And one thing she said um, you know, um, to her audience, you know, I'm talking to you as, as a Jewish person. Mm -hmm. you, you, need to, you need to take that on board. And what she said, you know, what, 
what what would not have been um, what would have been, what would not have been helpful um, during the Third Reich um, is um, to say you know Jews and Germans are part of the same humanity. We're all, we all love each other. She said because that would have been to totally disregard the reality that you're living right. in a political system that says that one of you is not. Right. Far better, she says, to say a German and a Jew and France. So you you acknowledge the reality of the politics of the racial politics. That is making an idea of a share of a, of a shared humanism impossible, um, but you're maintaining its possibility by acknowledging that reality and doing like like your like your guys doing your stuff in, yeah. in spite of that. Um, and um, I think that there's something you know in in your story and in Arendt's um, story there, which does resonate. Is your she would have been very suspicious of a false type of humanitarianism that tried to pretend. Um, that the politics of um, race weren't violent and horrible, yeah. um, and real, and real for um, ways in ways that a lot of you know, ways that are unimaginable for a lot of people. Um, but um, you 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 acknowledge that, and then you say, and still, and still, we're going to sit in the studio together, and still we're going to read this text together, and yeah. still we're going to do this together. And I think so. I think it's something. I mean, the the kind of um, Tuffy in me wants to say you stick with that reality. Yeah, don't yeah, that, you're right. It was a both and, well. right? But it's it's it's, yeah. it's again yeah. it's thinking. It's a, it's it is allowing the complexity of reality in. Yes, and yes. it's never. Yes. It's always messy. Yeah, you, yeah. The the the, the the origins of totalitarian ends with um, um, these these words. It says, but there remains also the truth that every end in history necessarily contains a new beginning. This beginning is the promise, the only message, in quotes, which the end can never produce. Beginning before it becomes a historical event is the supreme capacity of man. Politically, it is identical with man's freedom. And then she quotes Augustine that a beginning be made, that a beginning be made, man was created. And she writes, this beginning is guaranteed by each new birth. It is indeed every man I mean, those are very lofty words and really kind of yes. surprising <laughs> at the end of this book, which is about the darkest depths of <laughs> humanity. But yeah. I want to just, you reflecting on all of this, um, are talking about, you know, you've just used the word friendship, like, you know, very concrete, mm-hmm. on the ground ways to realize what she said. You know, you, you when you had this scenario that I read earlier you know, she might conclude saying to us, you'd be best advised and make some new friends so that together you can learn to think without banisters. Yeah. <laughs> is that a phrase of hers, think without banisters? Think without banisters is her phrase. Uh-huh. How do you, I mean, she's in response to the, um, the Holocaust in particular. I mean, how, how, once the impossible has been made possible, how do we judge? How do we think? And that, that was her motivating question. But her concern with beginnings are what she called natality. Yeah. Um, I mean, Heidegger was always being towards death. She was always being towards the possibility of of life. And I think it came through in two ways in, in her life. One is through friendship, because you know, each new encounter, especially when you're actually out of your bubble. I mean, she's talking about um, mm. Lessing's Nathan the Wise. And that's the kind of, you know, that's a story about Judaism, Christianity and Islam and people deciding that one isn't the better. And none of those are the superior religion. Um, but, but but actually they can actually have a dialogue. I mean it's it's a real it's a real text for our, for our time. Which would also so be really revolutionary then. I mean, it would yeah yeah yeah. <laughs> um, 
it was. Um, and so friendship, but not friendship, you know, friendship that has to work. Um, which is, you know, when I when I talk, you know, about you know people working refugee to refugee humanitarianism, that, that's that's a difficult kind of friendship. But it's yeah. a friendship that has has to work. But also, uh, when I was looking in her teaching file, which um, um, really brought home to me, um, is the importance of um, for her of her students, the importance of the people she called mm. the new people. Mm. And I think, um, you know, I don't think we're ever going to have the education, you know, the political free education that Arendt dreamed of, that formation. Um, but I think um, um, that kind of affirmation of teaching, of listening to students, of empowering students, of, you know, making it impossible for um, students to create the kind of the, the kind of new ideas of citizenship, those are the things mm. she, she believed in very strongly. And the older I get and the darker the times get for me and I'm sure, I know a lot of other people who work in universities and schools feel this the 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 place where I see new birth um are in my students mm -hmm. um and I think they they are they are you know that that is the beginning you know out of the the darkest times there will be you know there can be a new beginning and we need and we need to step back and shut up sometimes <laughs> and, and, and do the most we can to to, to make sure that happens mm. Mm. And anything else? Anything, I mean, anything else? I know there's so much we could still talk about. So much we could talk about. Um, um, I think you'd really want to say that. I, I feel like I've been, I've been talking in this dark, dark room. Oh, um, you have? Just, um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. It's, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's a nice. It's very Arendtian because what I've, what's nice about not being able to see you is you, I've... Um, what I like, I think Arendt would have liked radio. I mean, a lot of people from mid twentieth century liked radio because, it, although it did bad things in terms of propaganda, yeah. it made you listen to the voice, yeah, and listen to what someone is saying um, very carefully. Um, so I think, in, the, in terms of sort of the kind of encounters um, that Arendt would have liked, she would have wholly approved of conversation by radio. It would have been a Socratic. Well, right. Um, well, because her. and I, I mean, I do, I do, I do live interviews and I do public events. Um, what what I have learned to do um, is, so, you know, what I've become very aware of in my discipline is how much other information you're taking in, visual information when you're sitting with someone. Yes. Um, yes. And it is such a great great gift and a discipline to be able to listen completely, right? To only be encountering the voice. But I say to people, yeah. it's not like talking on the phone. It's really like my, I mean, it's like, I say it's like the Vulcan mind well, like my, like your thoughts are coming into my mind and my thoughts are coming into you, you know, we are, we are yeah. just, um, it is, it's a beautiful meeting of thinking, yeah. but it is embodied. Also the, very much. Hmm? Sorry, very much what Arendt said about thinking, because in a radio culture, people are listening as they're washing their floors or yeah. going for their runs or yeah. <laughs> um, you know, they're in everyday life. Um, so there is that kind of, you know, the two-in-one um, that Arendt, the Socratic two-in-one that Arendt so liked, I think is, you know, radio is a medium that allows yeah. that um, to happen. Well, I'm just thrilled. I've just found this thrilling, and um, I'm so glad you were able to do it, and I'm excited to put it on the air. Great. That's yes. I'm now exhausted. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, then you go away and re relax. We we do put the we we put the unedited interview out as well as the produced show. The produced show goes out on the radio and and it goes out as a podcast. But we also, I mean, okay, hundreds of thousands of people will 
possibly half a million will also listen to this unedited. And I'm really glad about that because this was really rich. Great. Um, no, I, no, I really enjoyed it. When, um, just so I can let um, my people know, when um, when do you... I, I think we have it... Um, I mean, we before it goes out, we'll send you the link. We'll let you know. I'm just somebody's May 18th is what we have on the schedule now. Okay, that great. could change, great, but great. you will absolutely. We'll give you plenty of you know. You'll you'll know great. when it's happening. It won't just it won't just great. come out. Um, yeah, thank Excellent. you so much. I'm just no, thank to keep you. you. Such yeah. great questions. Oh, okay. um, and I could have. I could have gone and got a large glass of Toulouse wine and then come back. <laughs> All right. Well, maybe maybe one day we'll meet and we could. I would actually really enjoy that. Yes. Could, okay. That would. Okay. Well, next time you're in Europe and, and okay. I, should, and I, should, I come to the States a lot. So. Okay. Well, if you ever come to Minnesota, come see us. But I'm I'm actually going to be in the UK in July. Are you going to be there in July? Do you know? Or, you know? Um, for the first three weeks and then I'll come back mm-hmm. to France. Okay. So um, well, maybe if you drop me the dates, that would yeah. be nice. Okay. All right. Thank okay. you. Have a good uh, okay. go Go rest now. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. Okay then. Yeah, bye-bye. Thank you. Yeah. Bye-bye.